listening to WRBH Reading Radio for the Blind. This is the Public Affairs Show. I am former Chief Meteorologist Carl Arredondo. I am now a Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialist. I travel with a white cane. I am visually impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa. On today's show, I've got a very interesting guest. We're going to have lots to talk about, uh, stretching from different topics, from the red dress run to uh, something pretty special happening for WRBH uh, Reading Radio. And we'll get to that uh, during the course of this uh, uh, show. First, I'd like to introduce my guest. His name is Joe Burns. I'm going to have Joe talk a little bit about himself and a little history about what he does and and what his title is and what Joe does. Well, it's, it's easy. I don't have any titles. So, <laughs> But the, my background is I was born in Mississippi. We went four years to Mississippi State, became a uh, with a degree in geology and came to New Orleans to work in 1967. And worked here a few years, and then Uncle Sam called, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps, spent four years there, came back to work and as a geologist and did that for 15 years or so and decided I didn't like it, and I would rather uh, become an accountant. I don't know what I was thinking, but later I discovered that I didn't really care for accounting either after I became a CPA and all that sort of thing. So anyway, I was, uh, uh, as a result of my tour in Vietnam and Marine Corps, I was left legally blind and became a member of the Vet Blinded Veterans Association after, uh, after coming back. So then uh, spent many years as just a member and then many years on their <clears throat> National Board of Directors. After, after that, I... Somewhere during that time, all of these things overlap, and I can't remember what I had for breakfast, and never, much less what happened that long ago. But I became involved in the radio station that was on, served on the board here for many years, several years, anyway. And then, uh, then along the way, I, I, became, I started to run because that was about the only exercise I could do. And then I had always read about the Hash House Harriers in the Runner's World magazine way back when, and I always wanted to do it. And then lo and behold, they were going to have a run near my house. And uh, so I, I discovered that the Hash House Harriers were started actually in the, back in the 40s in Kuala Lumpur by a bunch of Brits who were at a, an establishment called the Hash House and lamenting that they needed exercise so one got the bright idea that he would go out and lay some clues around town and the rest of the pack would try to find the clues. Then they would get, hence they would get their exercise, hence they would be able to drink copious amounts of beer after they finished. So that was the, the birthplace of the Hash House, hash house Harriers. And that now there's virtually at least one hash in every city in the world. And there are three here in New Orleans. They're in the big cities like Houston and Washington and San Diego. They have uh, over 10, R ranging in, in requirements, requirements. There are no requirements, but ranging in trail length from 20 miles to a fun walk type of thing. So there's, there's a hash for t to, to fit everybody. So as, as uh, being at the hash and then when they find out you have a, 
degree in accounting or you're a CPA, they want you to immediately keep their books. So I started keeping their books. And then about 25 years ago, Carl, am I jumping ahead too far? No, no, keep, no, keep going. You're fine. You're fine. 25 years ago or so uh, in San Diego, uh, a lady was on her way home on, on, flying and wearing a red dress trying to make get there in time to do the hash. Well, she didn't make it in time to change, so she ran the run in her red dress. And since nothing around the hash makes much sense, this fits right in, somebody decided we need to have a red dress run. So it was started in San Diego, and San Diego for many years, or for some years, was the biggest one of all. Then New Orleans started ours about 25 years, 20 years, 22 years ago, or so, so something like that. And we started off with, oh, just a few people. And then we decided that in August, there's nothing going on in this town. At least there wasn't then. There's a few things now. And so that it might be attractive to everybody to come out and wear a red dress and drink some beer and eat some food and have fun. And so before you know it, we started making a lot of money on the event. And so, well, a lot for us. So we decided to donate that money. So we started donating the profits every year. And uh, oh, up to date, we've donated a little over $2 million to the local charities, including WRVH, the Lighthouse, and, and, and um, any, anybody who wants to apply is, is welcome to do so under certain you know, restrictions. So that's why I, I, it finally dawned on me that our, our local blinded veterans group had taken on the me, uh, the mission, additional miss, mission of not only aiding our blinded vets and everything from dealing with the VA to, to uh, learning uh, how to do things, that we would try to raise awareness in the sighted community through the bronze Braille American flags. Well, these are manufactured by the Kansas Braille Institute and are, are really a, a, just an impressive uh, small item for anyone who, can you imagine someone who's never seen a flag, you know, blind since birth, whatever, and all of a sudden there, they're feeling a flag, that the stars are raised, the stripes are raised, and and then in, in in embossed on the stripes is in Braille is the Pledge of Allegiance. So it's a pretty cool thing. And we have given away several and it finally dawned on me that that this fits in with the grant system that the Red Dress Run was using. So this year I applied for a grant to place more flags in our metro area, and lo and behold, we got it. And so when I called the executive director here to make sure she wanted one, she not only said yes, but says, and come see Carl. So hence I'm here. I don't know if that under, that, that explained anything properly, Carl. Oh, or, no, you did. You did quite well. But we're, I'm going to back up a little bit because there's a couple of points I want to uh, talk to you about that you kind of mentioned and brought up. Uh, first, uh, 
for people that do not know, you are uh, visually impaired, as you mentioned. Can you describe how much you see right now or what, uh, what, you, what your vision is like? Well, my yes, uh, in the left eye is zero. It's uh, prosthetic. The, the right eye has suffered macular uh, damage, and hence it's just and, and has now developed a cataract. So a cataract is a clouding of the lens, which most everybody knows because it's, it's also age-related. Well, mine is trauma-related from the landmine that I detonated. So the, it's, it's, it's pretty much inoperable because the rest of the eye is damaged. And one, one of the things I want to point out, though, is that the history of orientation and mobility, what I do, training for adults or children that are low vision or blind to use a white cane, that actually started because of the VA way back after uh, one of the world wars. Uh, veterans are coming back without sight because of injuries. And um, that's how orientation mobility started because these uh, veterans still wanted to be able to function and be independent, even though they didn't have vision. So the history is that uh, the VA hospital um, up in the Northeast uh, basically started developing a training method to using a white cane for our veterans. So the VA was actually the inspiration to the profession now called orientation mobility. And I noticed that you mentioned that you have a guide dog with you. In order to get a guide dog, you had to go through some O&M training as well. Is that correct? That's correct. I, the, there's a blind rehab, residential blind rehab center, VA center in Biloxi. And they have a deal with the Guide Dog Foundation to supply dogs and trainers for folks that will go there to train rather than having to go to New York where the Guide Dog Foundation is headquartered. So I didn't think I wanted to go to Smithville, New York. And so I, I applied for a dog there. And they said, if you can come right now, we can do it. So I said, I can come right now. So I went over and spent some weeks with the trainer, professional trainer training me how to how to do the how to use the dog and training the dog how to get used to me, a bonding, all that sort of thing that they require. So uh, it's it's worked out really well for me. I'm not sure the dog would agree, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but most people when they they come to me for training, they just want to get a, a dog. And they don't understand that there's a, a extensive training on your own and then a, an extensive training with the dog because most people don't understand that a dog doesn't know when the light turns green or the the, the it's, it's that, that time to cross. That it, dogs know a lot. Right. And just, just an aside, after COVID and all that sort of thing, I wasn't giving the dog enough work, and I knew it. And I thought the dog was losing his memory, not, you know, through any uh, disease or anything, just uh, because he wasn't getting enough work, no, not enough. So I called the, the director up at Biloxi and asked her if she could, I could arrange a refresher course for the dog and me so that we could come train with somebody who really knew what they were doing so they could point out the things we were doing right and the things we were doing wrong. And so sure enough, she did that. Thank goodness for her. So I, I went up there, and after about a day, it, it was dawned on me that it wasn't 
the dog that needed to refresh your course. It was me, the operator of the dog. So I was doing so many things wrong just because I had fallen into the habit of not calling his name prior to commands, the simplest of things. Right. And so once I started doing everything right, the dog started doing everything right. So then I was, uh, I, I was glad to get the refresher course for me. Exactly. Because the dog responds to your commands. That's what the dog is trained to do. So the dog usually just responds to what you tell it to do. And that's the thing that most people don't understand. They think the dog is telling the, uh, the, um, the owner to cross the street now. No, it's actually us telling the dog to cross the street now. Right. Having, having a little bit of vision is very helpful with the dog. I mean, I, 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 like I, when I used a quite cane for many years before I got the dog, and I, I used the cane not only to feel things that were in the way, but to, to when I could see something, to feel the texture of it and, and, and poke it and really get a, an idea of what was down there or up there. And so it, 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 it helped to have a little bit of vision, a whole lot in mobility. Sure. Um, I want to go back to the, uh, the hashers. Now, there's a, a phrase, a slogan that you all have about runners with, can you t- explain what that is? Well, I thought that was we, great. <laughs> our, our, when people that don't know anything about the hash ask us, well, well what do y'all do? I said, well, we're a drinking club with a running problem. So, and we have some good runners, uh, although our, our, our events are more social events than they are athletic events. However, uh, when, when one sets the trail, the hair that for the other, for the pack to find, then the, the hair is full of tricks to trick you to go the wrong way, to trick you to uh, run a false trail, to go where the trail really doesn't go or to get you lost, all those sorts of things. So it's uh, it, it, it can be quite a run if you're really into going out there and scouting out the real trail and running false trails and that sort of thing. So we have some good runners, a lot of marathoners, a lot of ultra-marathoners, and a lot of walkers. So it's a full gamut of abilities. I just thought that's awesome because I know a lot of people that, that love to run, and uh, I, I still can't phantom that idea that somebody loves to run because my running's in short distances if I have to run. Um, but now that we talked about the running part, the uh, red dress run, you've seen it expand over the years to like this huge event now where most people are just going in red dresses and just enjoying themselves. They're not participating and maybe don't understand that the fee that you pay actually goes to charitable donations. Well, that's right. It's a, it's a, an, a, sort of an enigma that we've been facing for many years of what to, to try to collect a little bit from those folks that don't pay the entrance fee. Because the entrance fee goes, we have bands, we have food, we have beer, uh, good quality, all of the above. And so it's, it, it, it's expensive to put on, but the bigger we can make it, the more money we make to give to charity. And so it would be so much bigger, better, if we could give more to the local charities, a.k.a. collect more. 
And from those folks that banned it, the 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 red dress run and fill a cooler full of beer, put on a red dress and go to the quarter and sit on their cooler and watch the real red dress participants go by and have fun. Uh, they they don't really contribute anything to the GNP of the of the of the red dress run, and we would really like to for them to know that they are not, and that they they wouldn't be there if it weren't for us. So, not that, not that we're trying to get something we don't deserve. We are putting on the show, and hence should have some kind of entertainment fee or something. But we've never been able to know how to do that. So we've tried shaking a can and we've tried embarrassing some and, and uh, it, it just, it just doesn't work because the quarter, there are literally thousands of them in the quarter. Mm-hmm. So you can't make them, can't get them all. But if we could even, if we could get some, I don't know. We've tried selling T-shirts to them, all sorts of things. But anyway, we will uh, one day figure out how to, and I think most of them would be willing to do that because they understand it. Once you explain to them, sure, that it didn't. This this thing doesn't just happen. Sure, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of volunteers and a lot of work. Where where would someone? Um, what is the official website? Is there an official website where they register? I know it's published each year, but just for our viewers right now, our listeners right now, is there a what is y'all's website? Noh3.org. Noh3.org. org. We'll get you to anywhere you want to go. As get the the red dress is run is usually the second Saturday in August, and so as it gets closer. Uh, Usually about uh, uh, early, late spring or so, the registration opens. And if you register early, it's a much less uh, or much smaller fee, too. So there's advantage to getting getting in early. And then it helps the, the, the people who are doing the preparation to know how much to buy and all that sort of stuff. So it's... It, it helps everybody if we can get everybody, as many people as possible, to register early. And that, and that website will tell you what to do. There, there's a hasher list and a non-hasher. We have hashers that come here all, from all over the world to run our red dress because it's the biggest in the world. It, has t- it took over from San Diego uh, many years ago. So uh, can, if you, you, you can't imagine a city more... Uh, suited to the red restaurant than exactly. I, I call it Mardi Gras in August. Sure, and, absolutely. And, and so, uh, so we always have fun and and have a good time. It's rain or shine. We we go out there and and, and do what we can. The band is usually protected because they don't like to get rained on. But but we always have fun and and have a good time. And except for the COVID year, have made uh, a good return and been able to donate generously to to local charities and through that same website is that where they can apply for the grant or do the application process it, yes it will tell you where to go okay and so. and there's a number of uh, uh charities that you all do donate to uh, that apply for the grant so I, I think that's what maybe most people don't understand or don't even know that this is a, a big event but it's for a lot of good causes it is we 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 Mainly because I was on their board for a long time, and knew that the 
WRBH as well as the Lighthouse here, I, I was involved in both, that needed money to do their mission. And so that's how that started. But there's a list of uh, people, uh, charities we've contributed to on the website or from last year. And so it's, it's usually a 40 or 50 or so. And the only requirement is that you be a 501c3 and, and be somewhat local in your mission. So everything from Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, all sorts of running groups, uh, you, you, you name a charity, and we pretty much have donated to it at one time. Yeah, SPCA, local animal shelters, just about everything you can imagine. We, we try to give some money to. Awesome. Um, let's go back to the uh, Braille flag. You told me a story when we talked on the phone the other day about a little girl that, uh, you know, came to a Braille flag. And tell that story real right. quick. We made a presentation a couple of months ago to the Louisiana Department of uh, Louisiana School for the Blind and had the flag there, a lot of students, we were at their location in Baton Rouge, and uh, this little girl, about 10 years old, blind since birth, was overfeeling the flag and said something to the effect, oh, that's what the flag feels like. That's the stars. That's the stripes. And then she started to squeal. You know how little girls squeal? It's, it's, it's a, one of the nicest sounds in all the world. But she said, there's Braille on it. Oh. And she started reading in the Braille inscription of the Pledge of Allegiance. It, was, it, it, did, uh, it made the whole project worthwhile just to hear that. Right. So on the stripes of the flag... Are, is the Braille writing of the Pledge of Allegiance. That's correct. That's awesome. That, that, because uh, that's how children or adults who have never had vision, that's their literacy. They use Braille to read and write. So seeing that, I'm sure, made her, as right. you mentioned, squealed she, with excitement. She saw with her hands. Yes. And so the WRBH will be getting a flag. Is that correct? That's correct. Our first local from the grant. So that's when I was calling the, the director here to make sure that 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 the station wanted one, and and, and she pounced on me like a hen <laughs> on a June bug. So it was we were uh, so uh, yes, they're going to get our first presentation. They had been ordered; they're being manufactured now. Our first our first group of flags. So the, when we get it in, we will arrange. Uh, to have the presentation here at the station and have some of our folks and have some of the red dress folks and hopefully have uh, some city councilmen, that sort of thing here to, uh, to, to observe. It's, 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 it's kind of a big deal. Oh, absolutely. I think it's wonderful because working with the adults that are low vision or, or blind, I know that they rely on their touch, their sense of touch a lot. And to have a, some kind of uh, flag that, they can feel in case they've not ever known what a flag look like. Um, so once we know when this presentation will be, I'm sure we'll have another show talking with more details about it to maybe have some people you know, invited to come in and, and watch the presentation or maybe to make time to come and see the flag at different times during the, uh, during yeah, the course yes, of the year. Uh, I've been told it will be, it will, uh, probably be easel mounted first until a permanent location uh, until you discover 
where the the best place for it is, and it will probably probably be after Mardi Gras because okay, you know how this time of year here most things stop okay until after Mardi Gras, and I don't know about in Kansas, but I haven't heard had a notification that the flag is on the way yet. Okay, so. all right, awesome. Um, Joe, before we wind the interview, there's a couple of questions I usually ask my guests just because it's curiosity on my part, and maybe the viewers like to, our listeners like to uh, know as well. Um, what is your favorite kind of music or genre of music? What do you listen to uh, when you want to listen to music? Well, usually I sit down at my desk and I say, Alexa, play classic, either country or bluegrass. You know, they're not the same. And, uh, and what I like about the, particularly the bluegrass is generally there's a sprinkling of old hymns in there. And so I, 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 I much prefer the bluegrass version of, of old hymns, and uh, that's that's sort of it. I mean, I grew up, of course, on Elvis and rock and roll and that that, that sort of thing, but uh, some classic rock, but okay. I never could get into the, oh, what did they call it, the steel? Uh, steel guitar? Steel... Uh, Hard rock. Oh, type, okay. Hard rock. Okay. Thing. I got you. I got you. And so, but anyway, my okay. favorite is because I'm I'm old. So <laughs> I like old music. Okay. <laughs> Classics another word for old. What <laughs> is what is something you do to relax? What is a, a hobby or what do you do to relax? Well, of course, I like to walk. Uh, Kendrick, my dog, and I do some gardening and raise some vegetables and and I've, I've I fish. Um, I've got a boat and. Uh, well, I discovered a long time ago that if you have a boat, you can always get a boat driver. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure, uh, absolutely. And so, <laughs> yes. so I'm able to fish pretty much. Uh, that's smart. Do, that's so. smart. All right. And uh, the last question is, what um, what uh, is still on your bucket list? What is something you still want to do or go a place you want to go to? Oh, I, I still want to visit the, 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 the far northeast, Maine, New Hampshire uh, that area, not in the winter, but uh, in, in the in the summer or fall. That's one place in the United States that I would like to go to that I haven't been to. I would like to go to several, such as uh, Death Valley, but I but uh, to me it's not worth getting there. Okay, and so that sort of thing. But uh, I got you. Uh, not much. I I, I do. I, I I'm a minimalist. Okay, I I, I can certainly. Relate to that. I, I like doing uh, the least as possible. There's only a few things that I like doing. Joe, I want to thank you for being my guest today. And we're going to have much more on the presentation details coming up later on. So, Joe, thank you for being on the program today. Well, thank you, Carl, for having me. And um, I will tell you that my old fishing partner wouldn't listen to any weather forecast <laughs> except yours before we went fishing. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. You have been listening to WRBH Reading Radio for the Blind. This has been the Public Affairs Show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>